Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Alok Jha. This is Babbage from The Economist. Scientists in China are trying to determine if a new virus strain is responsible for a pneumonia outbreak in the city of Wuhan. It's been a tumultuous couple of years. It may belong to the same family of viruses that caused the deadly SARS outbreak. On the 9th of January 2020, it was confirmed that a mysterious pneumonia in Wuhan, China, was being caused by a new coronavirus. Cases started to spread slowly at first and then more rapidly, leading to some unprecedented measures. Drastic measures to halt the spread of that deadly virus. Wuhan, China, ground zero for the outbreak now under lockdown. Soon the virus was everywhere and the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. We're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. It felt like the world had stopped. Almost everywhere was in lockdown. It's vital to slow the spread of the disease. And that's why you must stay at home. In the background, though, scientists were already working on developing treatments. And what seemed like a key way out of the pandemic, vaccines. Pfizer and BioNTech reporting the first results from their phase three vaccine trial, saying that in this interim look, the vaccine showed to be more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases. But even with the success of the vaccines, new variants of the virus emerged, challenging our newfound immunity. What we've learned about this new variant, Omicron, is that it's spreading at a phenomenal rate. There's going to be a tidal wave of infection. Two doses of the vaccine are not enough to protect you. Two years in, governments are learning to live with the virus. But the World Health Organization recently issued a stark warning. Although reported cases and deaths are declining globally and several countries have lifted restrictions, the pandemic is far from over and it will not be over anywhere until it's over everywhere. With COVID-19 infections rising again in many parts of the world, today on Babbage we'll be asking, how did we get here and what's next for COVID-19? Thank you. 
Later on, I'll be speaking to Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. First, though, I'm joined by Jeremy Farrer, the director of the Wellcome Trust, one of the world's largest funders of biomedical research. Dr. Farrer has played a critical role in helping the world respond to COVID-19. As soon as he heard the first inklings that a new pathogenic threat was emerging in January 2020, he started working with the World Health Organization to raise the alert about the looming crisis. Dr. Farrer has spent his entire professional career working on infectious diseases and how to cope with them. When I first spoke to him more than a decade ago, he was already a towering scientific figure, partly for his role in identifying the re-emergence of H5N1 in humans, that's a deadly type of bird flu. In 2021, he published Spike, his inside account of the first hectic months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Jeremy, thank you for joining me. Yeah, great pleasure. Take me back to the first few months of the pandemic. You write in your book that as those sort of first few weeks happened in January 2020, you became increasingly concerned and you were sort of doing things you weren't normally doing when it comes to being an infectious disease scientist. Just take me back to those first few months. What was it like? Yeah, it both feels sort of like yesterday and it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, Different world. I would say January of 2020 was a, a really crucial month. It was crucial then, and it's crucial as we think th- to the future, actually, as, as well. But through that month of January, it, you know, it went from rumours to a gathering storm. I can't really describe it in any other way. A brand new human infection uh, coming across from the animal kingdom to which we didn't really believe we had any immunity We had no drugs, we had no vaccines. It was human-to-human transmission. There was asymptomatic transmission. And the early descriptions of the illness that it caused were spot on. Uh, Everything from asymptomatic to mild to very severe and tragically, yes, to death. So I think by the 20th of January, we knew everything we needed to know. Uh, You have been at the start of new disease outbreaks before. Why did this one feel different? Did it feel different? Yeah, it it was. I mean, the overriding sort of emotion really is fear. You don't know what you're dealing with in those early few days. It's chaotic. It's frightening. And, uh, you know, having been a, a doctor in Vietnam during SARS and bird flu and then involved in Ebola and many other emerging infections, as in Mexico in 2009, it, it's one of sort of not being in control. The uh, closest similarity I've had in my professional career to those epidemics was actually HIV in the mid-1980s as a medical student then doctor and and just feeling sort of then for the first time that you had little to offer other than comfort and counselling and you had none of those interventions that you need in order to to change the course of an epidemic. This one was different. It was. Uh, I would say that it's similar to SARS-1, but pretty quickly with SARS-1, we realised that there wasn't asymptomatic transmission. I passed it on to you or one person passed it on to the other before they became symptomatic. And that key difference explains why SARS disappeared within six months and why SARS-2 has caused such a global catastrophe. And then on top of that was that you were dealing with a very complex and very, very tense geopolitical situation. There was questions about whether China had started this deliberately or accidentally. Tensions were very high. There was very little cooperation and collaboration going on. And actually, I would argue now, as I did then, that the geopolitics of January and February 2020 made this pandemic far worse than it had to be. 
Okay, well, let's unpick some of what's happened in the last two years. I mean, two years after the pandemic was declared by the World Health Organization, we're in a situation where many countries, rich countries at least, are opening up. Many people have been vaccinated. Where it all started, though, China, it's in a very different place. It's once again enforcing lockdowns. I just wonder what your sort of assessment is of the pandemic. Are we on the beginning of the end or is this just the middle and we just can't see the wood for the trees? I, I genuinely don't know where we are in the course of the pandemic. Firstly, uh, the pandemic is, is in a sense never going away. COVID has been a human endemic infection since January of 2020, and it, it's with us for forever. And that is something we will all have to get used to. The, the challenge we've got now is that that uh, situation around the world looks very different depending on where you sit in the world. There are parts of the world with good access to healthcare, good access to public health systems, good access to vaccines, some parts of the world with different demography, younger populations, etc. Uh, and then you've got other parts of the world, and China is a particular worry for me at the moment, who have pursued a policy of zero COVID, done remarkably to protect their population over the last two years. But their exit from this phase of the pandemic now, I think, is extraordinarily difficult. They have a population which has not seen the illness that we've seen in many other countries. They have a zero COVID policy, which I don't think is sustainable over the long term with this level of infectiousness of the virus. And then unfortunately, the vaccines they currently have available are not as good as some of the other vaccines available globally. And so therefore, you've got this developing situation of a very highly transmissible virus, no natural immunity from infection, and not such good vaccines, and 1.4 billion people living in China. That's a lot of people to get infected over the course of the next 12 months with a very different immunity in their population. I think that's a huge risk for China. And I think, frankly, it's a huge risk for the world as a place where new variants will arise. Just focusing on China for a little bit longer, in, in large part, as you said, they were very successful at keeping infections down. And, and this has kind of come back to bite them a little bit. There are tens of millions of people who are elderly, who haven't had vaccinations. If infections rip through those people, there's going to be deaths of, of, of magnitude we haven't seen anywhere else before. What is the sensible path for them to get out of this then? Yeah, you've summed it up very well. Firstly, I don't think zero COVID has been possible since January and February of 2020. And of course, China is reliant purely on vaccine immunity rather than a combination of vaccine immunity and natural immunity. And actually, China has had something of a problem in making sure that more vulnerable people, particularly the elderly, are taking up the vaccine. So they've got a, a series of complicated situations. I think at the moment, the best path would be to use the time they have available to get better vaccines. And this is where I would call upon international cooperation to make Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca vaccines available, uh, Novavax vaccines available technically to China so that China can start manufacturing these at scale and develop their own, and then getting as many vaccines to people as possible, including boosting doses, and then gradually lift that zero COVID policy so that you get this combination of vaccine and natural immunity. I think that is the only path China really honourably can take now, but that is going to take a year, at least, as we've seen in the UK and around the rest of the world. And that potentially means then another year of very strict, severe lockdowns in China before the vaccine immunity sort of spreads to the level where it's it's safe to sort of open up again? Well, I, I think lockdowns are in a sense 
something of a failure of making other decisions earlier to reduce transmission. So I hope that this does not require lockdowns. There should not be lockdowns in the UK in the future, for instance, or in the United States. We should be able to use vaccine plus strategies, preventing lockdowns, not making them happen. And I think China could reduce the amount of lockdowns and allow that combination of non-pharmacological interventions, masks, social distancing, good ventilation, plus vaccines. That is the route out. But this will be 12 to 18 months before China is able to get to that position. What about the response to the pandemic in the West? I mean, in large parts in the last two years, Many Western governments, their sort of response has been perhaps a little bit too late in many respects. That means that we've had to have lockdowns. We've had more deaths than perhaps countries should have had given healthcare systems and so on. Um, you know, you've criticised Britain, for example, for going too far the other way from China in terms of like they have a zero COVID policy and Britain perhaps opened up itself a bit too much or perhaps locked down a bit too late. Tell me what the right balance should have been in the last two years. I think it's very different today. Uh, vaccines and therapeutics and rapid testing has changed the situation. So it, looking at it in March of 2022 is very different to looking at it throughout 2020 and most of 2021. I think the key lessons for me in 2020 before vaccines became available were the absolute critical need to take warnings seriously. And by that, I mean in October and November of 2020, when the data in the UK and in many other countries around the world was absolutely fantastic. You could see the epidemic coming again. And yet we, I'm afraid, did not learn the lessons from March 2020. Uh, and therefore, we had the horrific wave of January and February, March of 2021. And I think that wave, when, what, 50 or 60% of all deaths in the UK occurred, could have been at least reduced significantly, if not prevented altogether. Let's look ahead. You know, we'd all like COVID-19 to be over, but as you said, that's not going to happen. It, it will always be here. Now, it's starting to settle into its fate as an endemic disease, and people talk about endemicity without really understanding what it means, perhaps. Would you mind just defining what it is? What does an endemic disease mean? Does it mean that it's just there and we don't have to think about it, or... Is it constantly having to be suppressed all the time? It, it means it will continue to, to circulate. It's now part of a humanity at a global level. Within it being endemic, we will also, I think probably in the future, face epidemic waves, maybe as a new variant comes, or maybe eventually it will settle into a seasonal pattern where it becomes more autumn and winter disease and less in the spring and summer. But we're not there yet. And although I fully agree that central government policy in Europe, let's say, should reflect the most likely scenarios, which I think you're right in saying is a transition now from the pandemic phase of 2020-21 into an endemic phase with vaccines taking off the severe illness. That is, I think, the most likely scenario. My concern at the moment, though, is that's also, of course, the most optimistic scenario, in a sense, given that it's not going to disappear. It's the most politically expedient scenario for the future. And whilst we should be planning and moving into that as we are, I think we also must, and maybe quietly behind the scenes, we must make sure that we're planning for other scenarios. We are only two and a half years into a brand new novel human infection. So whilst we may plan around the central optimistic scenario that everybody is thinking of, I think it behoves all of us in positions of science and leadership just to be honest and say there are some other scenarios we must absolutely prepare for and we mustn't be left back in the position of January 2020 ever again. 
Well, I've, I've got to ask you what their scenarios are. I don't want to know, but I, I think that we should probably be told. Well, I, I think the scenarios range. I, number one, I think, is it disappears. Now, I put that at zero. I, I mention it because for completeness, really. That's not going to happen. In my view, that can't happen. No. Yeah. Um, the other scenarios are that new variants come along, which continue to be transmissible and cause severe disease. This idea that a virus becomes more transmissible and less severe, I think is nonsense. I, I think there's nothing to tell you that's going to be true, particularly in a virus that passes from me to you before it causes severity. Uh, its evolutionary advantage is there. And then the other scenario I'd mentioned, which I think is very real, is that because there is less international cooperation at the moment in understanding what's circulating in the animal kingdom, we face another pandemic potentially. COVID doesn't stop other pandemics happening. They're not linked. So we could face another event coming out of the animal kingdom and spreading globally with a completely different infection. And therefore, we'd be dealing with two pandemics at once. Just think of a scenario in January of 2023, a new virus comes out of Brazil, which is highly transmissible and causes young people to be very sick or die. You know, another horrible 1918 type flu may happen. We, none of us have had flu for two years, so we are a little bit vulnerable to a new influenza virus or something else. We need to be prepared for that. And at the moment, uh, I'm afraid all we're really considering is the optimistic scenario. Okay, so if we want to try and avoid nightmare scenarios of the type you've described, you know, what what is it that you think is missing still from the global response that, that needs to happen? Yeah, I think this pandemic has been worse because of the geopolitics of the world at the moment. And of course, with the horrific events in Ukraine, that is even worse today than it ever has been. I think we've got to appreciate these epidemics are not random events. They're happening because of the world we live in. They're happening because of ecological change, land use change, Yes, climate change and urbanisation. And, and unless we also address those drivers and then understand the animal kingdom, the human interface with animals and prevent these episodes happening, we will face more frequent and more complex epidemics uh, and pandemics. So that, that's the heart of surveillance, which I hope uh, Germany in the G7 process picks up from the pandemic radar that the UK initiated in its G7 processes. But that surveillance is stamp collecting unless it's linked to action. And the action is sharing the information and then being willing to act on it. Can you sketch that surveillance and subsequent action out for us about the kinds of systems you might need in place at primary health care clinics all around the world to sort of be monitoring people's bloodstreams to see if new viruses are appearing? And I just wonder, what does a surveillance system that can act in response to a threat actually look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll only give you know, a personal view of this. It's got to know what's circulating in the animal kingdom. I think that is really critical. But it's also in the critical care facilities, the intensive care facilities around the world. Actually, in reality, over the last 20 years, every single epidemic that I've been involved in, back to Nipah virus, SARS-1, SARS-2, Ebola, Zika, MERS in the Middle East, they've actually all been picked up in critical care, intensive care facilities. And that's because they get funneled there and you see the tip of the iceberg. And then the link into action is firstly on, I think we as a world must commit to having a proactive research development and manufacturing capacity for every risk we face. Um, there are not a thousand risks. There may be 20, there may be a hundred, but I think uh, we have it within us through platform technologies to develop drugs, vaccines and diagnostics for the major risks we face and that they are available before a pandemic hits, not 
after a pandemic hits so that we, within a month, we get to having drugs, vaccines and diagnostic testings available. That means investing now at risk and it means the public sector doing that rather than just the commercial sector. And then politics. If you don't get the politics right, political decision making, the ability of politicians and policymakers to understand data, to understand exponential growth, to understand the risks that we face, then you won't be able to respond to the surveillance or use the drugs and vaccines appropriately. So we have to bring all three of those things together, in my view, if we're going to stand a chance preventing this sort of event happening again. Can I ask you one question about vaccines? So the vaccines for COVID-19 obviously came along quicker than almost anyone thought. And that was a great success for science. But then the following year, 2021, as they were distributed, mainly among rich world countries, was in some ways good, but also some ways disappointing because most of the world was not vaccinated. Did that surprise you, the selfishness of, of certain countries to keep vaccines and put others at the back of the queue, namely sub-Saharan Africa and, and places like that? Yeah, the extent of it and the length of time it went on yeah, did surprise me, yes. And I think it is deeply frustrating. And I think it is a scar on humanity, actually. You know, we've been here before. We had the same with HIV, antiretroviral therapies available in many of the rich world, but not available, particularly on the continent of Africa, for far, far too long. And after that episode, everybody promised it would never happen again. And yet here we are, and it happened again. Um it's absolutely critical that we shift the centre of gravity for the science, the research and development, but critically the manufacturing, so that we're not dependent on a small number of high population countries, uh, India, China, the United States, parts of Europe to do the manufacturing for the world, that this is more equitably distributed and there is ownership in the continent of Africa, Central and South America and Asia, because that nationalism will happen again. If you're a politician in any country in the world, your prime responsibility is your citizens. And if that puts your citizens first in the queue compared to a citizen of another country, I'm afraid every politician is going to make that choice. We have to understand that and then think, what system can we put in place where they don't have to make that choice? And I've argued that we should shift the manufacturing to a network of what I call small population countries around the world so that they could manufacture for their own citizens very quickly and be exporting to the world very quickly. Countries like Rwanda, Senegal, Costa Rica, New Zealand, Denmark, Switzerland, maybe Singapore, because I think that's the only way we can get around the inevitable nationalism of giving vaccines to your own citizens first. What do you make of these sort of arguments that have been put forward in the last year to sort of waive patent protections of things like the mRNA vaccines uh, and, and so on for poorer countries? I mean, of course, if you don't have the patent protections, the companies will always be a bit reticent to get involved. My own view in 2021 was that the longer term discussion around patent protections and transfer of technology was an absolutely critical one to have. We will face other issues in the future, monoclonal antibody therapies for cancer, treatment for diabetes, epidemic diseases. I personally don't believe that in 2021 it would have made a massive difference to global supply. In the first half of 2020. Two now, we will have access to 22 billion doses of vaccine. That is enough for the world. And it's come out of the manufacturing capacity that already existed. One final question then, Jeremy. Um, I'm going to give you a time machine and transport you back to January 2020, which I know is a difficult time. But knowing what you know now, is there anything you would do differently? Anything that you would push harder on? Anything that you regret about the way that that month turned out in terms of what you could have impacted on? 
I would push it back earlier than that. I, I wish before December 2019 that we had vaccines against the major classes of viruses we knew could cause a pandemic. Uh, so I would start a bit earlier. In January 2020, if we'd acted earlier, acted harder, if we didn't have the geopolitical challenges of the time, I think we could have um, prevented the pandemic from taking hold as it did. Do, do you think the pandemic could have been worse? Oh, no doubt it could have been worse. I mean, we got lucky because there was actually immunity to this infection and that immunity could be mimicked with a vaccine. And we got lucky because essentially whichever vaccine approach you tried from RNA to traditional protein vaccines, etc., they work to protect people from severe illness. Just imagine the same transmissible virus, but causing illness across all ages, young people, children, young adults, as well as senior people, or if the infection like HIV did not generate immunity. So I'm not suggesting that this pandemic we got off lightly with what 16 to 20 million people have lost their lives. It's been horrific, but we should not think it could not be worse in the future with an even more severe infection, highly transmissible and causing severe illness in all people infected rather than in a relatively small group of most populations. Jeremy Farrer, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. For more news, views and insights on the future of the COVID-19 pandemic, subscribe to The Economist. Babbage listeners get a special introductory deal. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. This Thursday, subscribers can join a special digital event. The Economist's deputy editor, Edward Carr, has been speaking with Dr. Anthony Fauci. When I was part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, In the Trump administration, I was forced because I needed to at least preserve and maintain my own integrity as well as to stick with the science and not be um, acquiescent to false information. I was put in the very uncomfortable position, uh, particularly because of the nature of the structure of how the press conferences were set up to actually have to contradict the president of the United States, who is a very politically polarized president, as you know, at the time. (laughs) And it it was something I was really quite uncomfortable in doing. I took no pleasure at all. To sign up for the event, go to economist.com slash Fauci. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, has followed all of the twists and turns over the past two years. Natasha, it's great to have you back on the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Alok. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Now, we've not spoken to you for several months about the pandemic. Tell me what you have been following most closely at the moment. Are there things that we need to know that perhaps we're missing out because of all the other horrible news events going on right now? 
Well, I think there's a lot of discussion going on in the background about sort of how prepared we should be and how many vaccines people should have and the degree to which we should be relaxing restrictions in different countries of the world. Personally speaking, over the last couple of months, I've quite enjoyed not being focused on COVID and I've taken the opportunity to look at some other health issues because, um, you know, believe it or not, there are one or two other quite serious diseases in the world. Well, let me turn your mind back to the horror of the last two years. And people are talking all over the world about, I put this in inverted commas, returning to normal. And we just heard Jeremy Farrer. He's kind of said that there's no such thing as um, this virus ever going away. Talk to me about how you think about this sort of transition into the next phase of the pandemic and beyond. Well, I think about the return to normal as something that for many people around the world has actually happened. And most people are really just happy to be getting on with their lives. Albeit we are living in a new normal. It is a normal where we have to coexist with another disease, which we don't know what it's going to do for us in the future. We don't know if it's going to resurge really badly. We don't know if it's going to just peter out over the course of this year and the next ones. Um, so there is some uncertainty there. But my approach is to hope for the best, but keep a firm eye on all the things that we need to do to sort of plan for bad outcomes. And I think the picture you're painting is largely the case in many Western countries. There seems to be lots of cases around, but not necessarily hospitalizations and deaths that sort of track that. Now, you just listened to our interview with Dr. Jeremy Farrer. Can I start by asking you for your overall thoughts about what he said? I mean, for example, what, what did you think about what he said about the situation in China, which seems to be kind of a focus for public health attention right now, given you know their specific and unique situation? Well, what really interested me about the COVID situation in China is that it was a conversation that you and I had on the Jab podcast uh, probably, what, a year ago, which was really kind of pointing out the problems with the zero COVID strategy and, you know, how at some point you had to kind of rip the plaster off and just get on with it. And to deal with that, you have to vaccinate as widely as possible one must assume that they have felt like they could maintain this zero COVID strategy. And in the face of some very transmissible new variants, they're struggling to hold that line. So I think Jeremy put it all very well. The only thing I think I would say is I would strongly urge the Chinese to start importing Western vaccines. Do you know if the Western companies, if they're going to be entering the Chinese market or if there have been any invitations made? I don't know. Um, but what we do know is that it's actually a vaccine glut at the moment internationally. And there's plenty of vaccine available for the Chinese should they express an interest. And in fact, what I would say is, is as the year progresses, if these vaccines are not taken up, it's possible that the vaccine-making companies will start to reduce the amount of supply that they're making. And so the problem is, is if, if China prevaricates and doesn't show an interest in Western vaccines, and then we start making fewer of them, and then they decide they have this great need or this sudden urgent need, then, you know, you may get to a situation where you can't get the supply. So China really needs to sort of indicate its willingness and readiness to accept foreign vaccines that have higher efficacy than the vaccines that they've been using. Let's talk a bit about um, vaccine equity. And, and again, we talked about this on the jab 
on a regular basis, the fact that the vaccines were first going to richer countries and that it would take well into 2022 for developing nations around the world to get their first shots, never mind their second shots. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Dr. Farah, in our interview just now, has said that, you know, that way that vaccines were distributed globally was a scar on humanity. Um, do you agree? No, I don't, actually. I, I think the vaccine distribution hasn't been fair, um, but I don't think it's a scar because I actually think we tried to do a really good job. And that's why it's nothing like what happened with HIV drugs, because we did actually set out to try and solve this problem. We didn't do as well as we hoped. But one of the things that may surprise you, Alok, is that we've actually delivered 1.2 billion vaccines to low-income countries through COVAX. And at the moment, they're saying they've got more supply than they can accept. And you wouldn't hear that story. It's a good news story. But that is actually a fact. And in many ways, what we've just been through is the fastest global rollout of any medicine in history. We've never done anything like this before. And so while there's plenty to criticise about how the rollout happened, it's not as if we didn't try to do a good thing. And then, of course, the thing that everyone really forgets is that what our plans were was that most of these vaccines that were supposed to go to low-income countries were supposed to come from India. And those plans were thwarted because the Indian government kept vaccines for itself. Now, at the time, nobody wanted to blame India because they were going through this terrible wave of disease and devastation. But the fact remains that an order was put in and paid for to Indian suppliers and the government prevented those vaccines from being exported because they hadn't invested in their own vaccine supply. So they kept what was destined for uh, other countries. So if we are going to point the finger at moral failings, I think we really do need to point a finger at the Indian government. Dr. Farah also talked about how you might organise vaccine production in the future. He basically said that perhaps the, the vaccine production should be distributed globally around medium income countries and sort of medium sized countries. So they could still provide vaccines for themselves, but then they could still supply the global market on top of that. I mean, commercially, I don't know how that would work, but what did you make of that? When I first started talking about vaccine distribution, which would have been March, April 2021, one of the first things I said internally was vaccine nationalism is going to be a problem. We need to have vaccine making facilities in small countries. And that is the only way you can get around that problem. The other option is the way that BioNTech are looking at it. And BioNTech are sort of trying to create this containerized system where you have this vaccine making plant in a set of shipping containers and you can essentially have a very small scale facility at relatively low cost. And so that model would see lots of different facilities like that in many different places around the world. But, you know, I don't think this sort of concentration of vaccine production is one that we're going to get around particularly quickly or easily. But I think we're making progress and we will make progress. Okay, just finally then, how are you feeling about the future of the pandemic? Are you seeing signs that people have learnt enough to avoid such a calamity in the future? I mean, there's going to be another pathogen that inevitably emerges. Do you think that people are more prepared and ready for next time? Well, I do. Yeah, I do. Because we're already in a situation where we can create a new vaccine for a variant of COVID in 100 days. And we're looking very seriously now at how to further compress that timetable. 
And then there's also a lot of work going on on developing candidate vaccines for different nasty diseases. And in fact, Moderna announced recently that it's going to work on developing vaccines against 15 nasty pathogens. And then at the same time, there's also quite an active pipeline in antivirals as well. So I'm kind of really optimistic on the sort of vaccine and therapeutic front. We are also doing more in the way of surveillance globally. What we haven't done and is hard to do is to reduce the likelihood of an emergence of something spilling over from the animal kingdom. And without wanting to get into the whole debate exactly of how COVID emerged, did it come from a lab or did it come from a market, the fact remains that it is that zoonotic boundary between animals and humans that represents this huge threat to humanity. And we haven't really even begun to sort of tackle that really to reduce that risk. All right. Well, Natasha, thank you very much for your time. Okay. Thank you, Alok. Take care. And thank you for listening to Babbage. For more analysis on the pandemic, listen to Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. This week, the show explored how America handled COVID-19 as it reached the grim milestone of a million deaths. And you can stay up to date on all our shows by subscribing to The Economist Podcasts on your podcast app. Babbage this week was produced by Jason Hoskin and Hannah Fisher, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producers were Sandra Schmueli and Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha, and in London, this is The Economist. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.